AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hey, Bindu, I understand you're looking into a story about the state of readiness for some of these next generation security threats? Yes, Sean, thank you. So Checkpoint recently did a survey and came out with a report um, about a week ago that talks about how 97% of the organizations are not prepared for what they call the Gen 5 attacks. So it's interesting to see that because, you know, as we talk to a number of our customers and we deal with organizations of varying sizes, we are hearing the same about, you know, their readiness in terms of being responsive to attacks is definitely lagging. And we also see that a number of organizations are struggling with sort of the skill shortage with IT teams in-house and also trying to deal with, you know, some of these advanced threats of today that have these layered approach in terms of, you know, attacking. And they're not able to detect these types of attacks. So what, what makes a Gen 5 attack different from a Gen 4 attack? What, what, are there some unique uh, new things that make it harder for your security team to defend? Yeah, I think you know, they, from the report, you know, the Gen 5 uh, description is around that multi-layered attack, right? So you start off with a phishing email, then it gets you to click on a link, and then you download the malware. The malware spreads and starts exploiting the different ports that are open within your uh, systems. It's sort of a stealth attack. It's got multiple layers to it. The threat vector is uh, more than one. And organizations, you know, because of the types of tools and technologies that they have within uh, their SOC, uh, that are not integrated, right? So they don't really get to detect these attacks on time. And all of the stats that we've also seen, you know, shows us that, you know, it's about uh, 200 days that the hacker sort of stays within a network before, you know, they're being detected. So across organizations, you know, we are seeing that their security technologies, you know, is somewhere along the line of Gen 2 and 3. So, you know, they have the firewalls in place. They have the antivirus in place. They're really not focused on proactive threat uh, intelligence and threat prevention as much as they're sort of in the reactive mode constantly. When I was looking at this story, one of the things I was thinking about is a lot of organizations are moving their infrastructure into cloud environments, which presents a whole new set of challenges for being able to detect threats out there, because you're moving your perimeter. Before, like you said, a lot of organizations, they've got a lot of firewalls, they've got antivirus, they've got like their internal net defenses, but as they move to cloud or architectures, they have to come up with you know, strategies to monitor and defend their stuff that they're moving out of their, you know, company, as well as um, some of those IoT spaces where you might just not have good understanding or visibility into what some of these devices are and what they're exposing, as well as you do, you know, your Windows machines or your servers and things of that nature. So that's what I was thinking about. Yeah, and you know, this report also sort of delves into the whole application security space with, you know, mobility as well. So, you know, you have a number of these applications that are within the Android App Store that could be malicious and organizations, you know, have end users who are not aware of this and, you know, download that. You know, it talks about, you know, how we are sort of in the constant firefighting mode. We're not strategic about security. And organizations sort of need to take a look at the big picture, include mobility, cloud, IoT as part of their overall, you know, risk and security strategy. It also seems like maybe a big part of this maybe be like bring your own device. 
So you mentioned installing, right. you know, on your Android phone, or maybe if you're bringing your own laptop. Uh, certainly, public cloud where you can't really integrate maybe the logs or your intelligence from public cloud to your enterprise devices. So the tools really aren't doing this correlated view of everything you own. Right. Right. Well, I appreciate you bringing the story to us and definitely something for organizations to think about um, as part of their overall cybersecurity strategy. So a uh, good article to check in on for people out there. So John, I hear you have a story about a large botnet takedown? Uh, we do, and um, this one is pretty large and well known. It's been around for uh, quite a bit of time. So the guys from abuse.ch, Proofpoint, and uh, Brilliant IT, the three of them got together and they have done a botnet takedown on the EI test botnet, which a lot of people haven't heard about, but this is actually a very large botnet composed of some 50,000 or so servers, a lot of them compromised WordPress sites. So they'll use these uh, websites uh, to distribute, like they'll have rig exploit kit on there or something for drive-by um, infections and uh, distributing uh, ransomware and other things of that nature. So this takedown, one of the things that they discovered as part of it is there's like tens, hundreds of thousands of domain names all pointing to various parts of this infrastructure by many different actors to distribute their families of malware. Um, but a lot of it, it all hinged upon one or a very small number of domain names. So they're able to sinkhole that one domain name and redirect because that was kind of the, the lead-in spot where everything had to come through that. So they're able to do that, um, which you know, was able to protect a lot of users. I guess we'll see how it goes in the future. This is one we've actually been watching in our botnet tracking for a while now. And uh, it's interesting to see how it shifted to the sink sinkhole back on March 15th, uh, which is when that happened. So there have been any attempts by the actors to reclaim the infrastructure? So far, there has not been any attempt by the previous owners of this botnet uh, to reclaim it. And I kind of, I'm wondering if it's nebulous as to who actually owns it, because I feel like it's just kind of a, it's kind of a consortium of people that are all using this bad infrastructure over time here. So, you know, we'll see. Right now, it seems to be an effective means. And to me, one of the big points is just whether it's going to be effective long term or if it's going to be a very temporary thing. I think there have been takedowns where just two days later, yes, everything's back been. the way yeah, it was. I forget, there was one actually where they took it down. The botnet operator took it back. They took it down again. I think they did again. And then finally, the botnet operator like sent some kind of message that basically they waved a, a white flag, like, we give up. You can have it to the, the good guys who were trying to take it down. Um, I can't remember which one that was. But you know, we'll see. Uh, I think doing something is better than doing nothing, um, especially you know, um, when it's something of this size that really needs to get addressed. So, Thank you, John. Yep. Thank you. So Mike, you're going to share with us uh, some information about email addresses that are somewhat of like wildcard email addresses with dots in them. Right, yeah, so this is an interesting story. A Gmail user received an email from Netflix basically telling them that their credit card had expired. Mm -hmm. So they looked at the sender, it was legitimately Netflix, they hovered over, there was a link in the email and it, it went to Netflix, so they clicked it, took them into an account. They didn't recognize the credit card number as theirs. So they started to look a mo little more into this account and they realized it wasn't their account, it was just some completely other random person. And they noticed that the email address associated was a version of their Gmail address. So Gmail has this, they call it a feature, where 
all the dotted versions of your email will route to you. Meaning, if your email address is first name, last name at gmail.com, first name dot last name at gmail.com will also route to you. Or a dot between every letter, first right. initial dot last. You know, they just throw away the dots. They throw away the dots. They say the dots don't matter. But they do. But they do. So in to this case, <laughs> exactly. So in this case, uh, Netflix, it does matter. So those resolve to two different email addresses. Two different accounts in Netflix. Two different accounts in Netflix right. with just the dot being the difference. Well, in Netflix resolve to two different accounts, but in Gmail, the email all resolves to the same ones. So what they uh, speculated was there's potential for a scam here where if you went into Gmail, into Netflix, and you found a valid Gmail account by just brute forcing the, the sign-in attempts, right. you could sign in with a new account with this whole dotted notation, and then you could potentially get that user to pay for uh, your, your Netflix subscription. Right, so the scam is I go in with the first name dot last name at gmail.com, I register with Netflix, I put in like a bogus temporary or a temporary card, right. like a little prepaid card that might only last for a couple of months or something. That expires. The real first name last name guy gets gets the email saying, "Hey, your card expired." He thinks it's his real one. Goes in, okay. updates it with the right credit card information. And now I'm sitting back watching Netflix on somebody else's dime. So there's a couple of side effects here that, that led to this. So one is that Netflix doesn't do email verification. So when you create an account, it doesn't send you that confirmation email that you click on to finalize your account. And the second is when you get that email that your credit card is now invalid, it has an authorized link in it, which means you click on it, you don't have to re-authenticate with your credentials. So it's kind of two, uh, I guess, limitations in the way Netflix does security. That, that and I've seen other this. sites do that same kind of thing, where they'll send you a link that you can click in an email and it gets you right into your right. account, which I find strange. Right. And it's a combination of the two that make this work. So people are out there trying to get free access to the service right. using somebody else's uh, credit card, basically, an account. Right, right. So what's interesting here is it's, you know, if you take each system on their own, they really don't have a vulnerability, but when you when you integrate them, I think Bruce Schneider had the same comment, which is, well, you don't have a vulnerability in necessarily in Gmail and one in Netflix, but when you when you combine them and interface them, that's where you potentially expose this vulnerability. Right, right. I mean, that being said, I think both sides have a little bit of weirdness sure. in the way they handle things, but this whole not caring about dots in the email address is a little weird to me that Gmail's doing that. Um, because the rest of the world does not do that, you know what I mean? Right. Uh, to the rest of the world, those are always unique email addresses. Right. So. I mean, I personally had this in, in my email where at one point I was getting, there was a professor at some university and the students were emailing me their assignments oh, because really? it was using one of these dot. dotted variations. Hmm. Um, yeah, at one point I was getting someone's like uh, notice for their rent was due. So this, I've had this issue with the dotted representations oh, interesting. in my email interesting. too. So if your email address was just dots, then you, it would be nothing <laughs> at all. You get all the email. <laughs> I don't think that would happen. But in any event, uh, it, it's interesting um, from both angles, and I wonder if there's other uh, popular services right. that you could kind of do this combined weirdness in order to exploit that, similar to what they're doing here with Netflix. So, I mean, thanks for bringing it. It's an interesting story.
Hey, Michael. So I guess you were looking into a story about a competition um, looking into better cybersecurity in the energy sector? That's exactly right. The Department of Energy hosted an event and they had uh, three locations across the U.S. and 25 different teams of college students. It wasn't the same format as I've seen in you know, a lot of other uh, events. We're having a hackathon here, another setting up behind us. Uh, this one required each team to set up infrastructure. Oh, okay. And then once they set it up, a team of really good like pen testers came in and threw everything at them, and they had to keep up all of the stuff they set up and survive while all of these uh, attacks were coming at them. So, so the college students participating were the defenders in this exactly. case, okay. And, and obviously, you know, they're getting everything thrown at them, very hard to do, but a fantastic experience, I think, to go through that. And to see, first of all, it's hard to set stuff up to start with, but then once you get it set up, if they're all being attacked at the same time, you know, you just realize that this is a, a huge challenge. And hopefully that lesson will stay with these students and they'll be on the defense side in some capacity in the industry, you know, whether they're working uh, in the Department of Energy or they're working for, uh, you know, anybody out there providing services like we provide. Uh, we need more people on the defense side, obviously. Uh, and I always, um, when I get the chance to talk to, uh, to talk to high school students, tell them that you know cybersecurity is a growing field. It's a great place to look into, take classes when you get a chance for some electives, and see if it's your thing. I think this type of event really gets gets them into it and tests whether this is something they might want to do going forward or not. Yeah, and you know this in the biz we call this red team, blue team exercises, and I know some of us have participated in some of those in other areas. Um, I think they're really valuable because a lot of times, you know, most of the time, myself, I am a blue teamer. I'm always defending, but it's really good to take some time to understand red team practices because as part of your defense, you want to understand how they come in. You want to know those tools, and in your downtime, you're going to be finding. Uh, vulnerabilities in your own infrastructure using those same practices where you know you're not letting somebody else on the outside do it to you. Sure. You're kind of red teaming yourself um, in your spare time, so to speak, um, while you're doing your blue team uh, defense practices. So. Yeah, yeah and, and these kind of exercises or hackathons, if you want to call it that, are you know, really spur innovation. I mean, we have one here today, like you said. So we have this internal software symposium, and in conjunction with that, we do this annual hackathon. We have uh, tracks for IoT. Uh, we have a capture the flag that we're hosting, really to spread more general security awareness and you know hit on some common web vulnerabilities that we see in our applications. Uh, so it's just really an interesting event to have, um, and really just drive forward you know some kind of new thought and innovation. Yeah, and all of it, like in the hackathon that we're having this week, the thing I like about it is you team up. So you get teams. It's not a single event or a single participant type of thing. Uh, people group up in teams, and I think having team-based uh, exercises really, I think you get a lot more mileage out of that um, as different people share their knowledge with each other because no one person can know everything. So there's also a lesson in collaboration because yes. you're building on with each other, each other's insights. Which certainly is going to help you out in the future, right? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we're looking forward to ours kicking off today, and um, it's definitely a good thing for organizations to think about um, integrating those types of exercises into their own, you know, regular cybersecurity practices. I think. 
All right, guys, so I thought we'd take a look at the internet weather for this week. No major uh, big changes from what we've been looking at um, over the past month or two, except one that I kind of highlighted has kind of crept up here into the top 10, which is that port 53413 UDP. Uh, which is related to this Netis router vulnerability. It's a very old vulnerability that still every once in a while we get these attackers uh, scanning for those devices still. But you know, most of these are remote desktop type things, like you've got Telnet or remote access type things. Telnet SSH at the top, we know there's a lot of IoT stuff there. 8545 is that Ethereum uh, wallet that had a vulnerability, so there's still people trying to hack into those to steal some Ethereum uh, cryptocurrency. Uh, a lot of the other stuff is a lot of stuff we talk about on a regular basis. We're going to take a look at um, that one port in more detail in a second here. The most sources probing um, activity is usually more interesting to me because it usually reflects some sort of botnet-related activity because you're getting a lot of devices all at once trying to scan a particular port and protocol. Um, really interesting, port 2000 TCP has, over the past couple of weeks here, gone to the number one position, which has traditionally been held by Telnet, 23 TCP, probably for the past two, three years, <laughs> Telnet has held that position for the most part. So very interesting that port 2000 has uh, made it to the top. We're going to talk about why that is. And port 5555 TCP is also one you don't hear about much. Uh, but it's in the number five position. We're going to talk about that one as well. So let's take a closer look at 53413 UDP. Um, we can see towards the uh, right side here, it's not like a super gigantic volume change here, but you can see there's more density in how much activity we've had versus the past uh, 60 days or so. Uh, this is a 90-day view. When I looked, it is a very small number of sources uh, contributing to this activity, less than 10. They're all in this one web hosting provider in the Netherlands. Um, so it's probably you know, a small, limited number of actors that are still looking for vulnerable devices of this type. So moving along, port 2000 TCP. So there is a vulnerability that was discovered or kind of reported in the press uh, back on March 16th. And shortly thereafter, we started to see increased scanning activity on two of these MicroTik ports. So 8291 TCP is this stuff in red, and we saw them exclusively scanning with that. And then port 2000 is more well known as this bandwidth test port that you can use, and only the MicroTik routers really have it, and it's really easy if you poke it, you can tell that this is definitely a MicroTik router. So I think what they're, and you can see they kind of transitioned here. So they were trying this 8291, when I say they, the bad guys, and they kind of shifted at some point here to move over mostly to the port 2000. We don't really see much of this 8291 TCP scanning anymore. I think what they're doing here is they're using this as a means to identify what devices out there are MicroTik ones so that they can exploit them. Uh, so this is a good technique for you know, finding just the types of devices you're interested in and then going on to exploit it further. So it's obviously a theme here where both of these, or the previous one too, is a router yep. and finding vulnerabilities and you can hide those and you wouldn't necessarily see that. Right, it's very difficult nefarious. for people to know that they've been compromised because it's at the edge of their network usually. Uh, that's an important one. There's actually um, Security Week put a report out on this that kind of describes this vulnerability. Uh, there is a uh, patch for it, I believe. Uh, there's definitely an advisory they put out. Uh, but the problem, again, with a lot of these devices, a lot of people, once they deploy them, they don't 
think to go update it. It's just this device. It's doing what you think it's supposed to be doing, routing your traffic to the internet. Um, and it really is not something you interact with much other than letting it route your traffic for you to the internet. So definitely something people who have MicroTik devices should go look into. And similar to NetIS, the same types of things are being done, so they're probably using it to yeah. do botnet activities or mine currency or something right. like that. Um, I don't know if they mention what they're doing with them right now, but I'm going to guess it's probably the similar types of activities that we've seen before. Um, and then the last one I have here, we've talked about this in the past few weeks or months as well. Um, back in February, uh, an article came out, and um, it's about this port 555 TCP, which is the Android debugger port. And there's some small number of devices. When I say small, it's around six to 7,000 or so. It kind of went down and has since gone up in the past few weeks here. Um, to the seven and a half thousand or so scan sources per hour, which means there's definitely a decent number of them out there. So, so instead of um, a user probably going into settings and saying, "I want to turn on debugging," it's more likely that they have some type of uh, app or some function or something on a browser that just said, "Hey, this crashed. Do you want to turn on debugging?" And they said, "Yes." There's a couple scenarios. There could be somebody who ships something on a small number of Android devices and left that turned on, that feature. Okay. Or I'm a developer and I'm writing an app or something of that nature on an Android-based device, and I want to do some debugging of that app while it runs in the, in the operating system. There's actually an article about it um, that came out uh, in early February about a botnet that was in a very short period of time, which is what we could see in our charts as well. 24 hours, about 5,000 devices were scooped up into this botnet and they started mining cryptocurrency. So, um, you know, a good thing to keep on top of. Again, sometimes these, this is a hard one to know necessarily that you've left this service turned on. Well, once the mining process starts running, you'd think that if you're looking at resource consumption, it's, something's going to show up. Yeah, but are you? You know what I mean? Looks. Depends on what it is. <laughs> if it's a phone, am I really checking? Or um, There is a lot of Android-based devices out there besides mobile devices. There's lots of uh, um, little set-top boxes, those types of things, or even smart televisions TV have Android right in them now. So um, it's being used uh, quite a bit uh, around the world. So anyway, good one to keep on top of, and hopefully we don't see more devices getting scooped up into that uh, in the future. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.